1: whatever my partisan affiliation, I don't want to retire from this place one day and look back and think I made our country less safe for my children or grandchildren. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU
0: National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, Head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. Today's podcast is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay respects to their elders. Today, our guest is Senator James a uh, Liberal Senator for Victoria, but uh, importantly for this conversation, the Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and the Shadow Minister for Cyber Security. And, James, welcome. To the program. Great to be back with you. And you are back with us because I would note that uh, you joined us a couple of years ago. I think uh, then in your capacity as chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, and the national security landscape has moved uh, pretty dynamically and in some ways very frighteningly uh, in the years since then. So it is an important moment to to welcome you back. I'd like to have a wide-ranging conversation with you today about national security, national preparedness, national resilience, really how can Australia uh, advance and protect its interests and values in mm-hmm. this this pretty confronting international environment. So let's go there in a moment. But first, I actually want to thank you for your personal support of an initiative we have at the National Security College. And that's an initiative we call NS23, which is our program of briefings for parliamentarians uh, sponsored and supported by uh, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong, the Shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham, yourself, and of course, um, Peter Khalil uh, from uh, from government and, and, sh- and now Chair of the um, Parliamentary Joint Committee. So um, thank you for supporting that program because that has, I think, achieved a lot this year in helping us build a... Uh, a shared awareness across the political spectrum of the security challenges facing Mm. Australia. I I agree, Roy. It's an incredibly important program,
1: particularly because most members of parliament do not have a professional or academic background in national security. But given the times we're living in, we are called upon to make decisions about that almost every day. And there is no professional education for MPs other than what you are providing
0: to us through this program. And I think it really has already enhanced the level of knowledge in the parliament. Well, thank you. And we hope to keep this going and, and really extend those conversations to parliamentary staff as as, as well in, in the near future. But let's go to some of the really substantive issues at play in national security at the moment. And of course, we're recording this on the 18th of October, uh, 2023, uh, this has been really a very harrowing time in international affairs. Uh, most recently, with the the crisis, uh, the conflict in the Middle East, um, precipitated by the uh, you know, the the horrific attack uh, on Israel by Hamas, uh, but now be, it's being extended into a really open conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas uh, in, into Gaza and uh, an awful humanitarian cost already. Um it would be useful to hear your perspective on this, particularly the question of how we maintain Australia's social cohesion at mm. this time. Mm. Look, it's an incredibly troubling and distressing turn of events for
1: Israelis in particular because it has punctured their sense of safety and security that for the best part of the last decade, they felt that they lived under and it's actually a reminder to all of us um, if even the IDF and the Israeli intelligence agencies can uh, miss signs and a terrorist attack can be um, allowed to proceed without being foiled, then we can too. And we should never forget that that terrorism threat hasn't subsided. Like you, I'm very concerned about the implications for social cohesion in Australia. It was very unfortunate to see some of those protests, particularly in Sydney, where uh, inflammatory and potentially um, criminal incitements to violence occurred, in particular those chants of gas the Jews. Now, there have been calls for if any of those people uh, guilty of that were temporary visa holders, that their visas should be cancelled on character grounds, and I agree with that. But I think the even more disturbing truth is that Probably most of those people were born here, were raised here and were educated here and nonetheless still think that's an appropriate way to behave, to racially vilify a minority and to call for violence against them. And that is a very big challenge for us to confront as a nation. How do people born and raised in our country think that that's okay? I think there's a lot of things that that lessons that come out of that. The first is leadership is very important from political leaders. We have to be unambiguous about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and making sure we send a clear message about that. Secondly, I think our education system has a very important role to play, not just in teaching the virtues of tolerance and pluralism and diversity, but also teaching the virtues of Australian values and our place in the world and the distinctive freedoms that we enjoy because of who we are. And those are inseparable from the values we have. And if that's not inculcated in future
0: generations, then I think you will see more events like this. And this, I guess, is part of a larger conversation as well about the rights and responsibilities of of citizenship Mm -hmm. in Australia. Exactly right. Look, That's a really big question, a question for migrants who choose to
1: come here and make their life here and a a question for those of us who have the great fortune of being born here. Um, But if you do come here and you choose Australia, you are not just choosing our beaches and our weather and our sense of safety and security. You're choosing our institutions and our values and our um, social norms and they need to be taught and upheld by everyone who comes here if we want to continue to enjoy the very unique uh, civilization and society that we've
0: built. And across the... Political spectrum. How do you see the the opportunity and the need now to effectively keep the the temperature down, to 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 keep the debate uh, and uh, community responses at mm. a level that that doesn't um, sort of accentuate the problem mm. further?
1: We have had in the Senate and the House of Representatives this week a bipartisan motion that condemns Hamas's behaviour and expresses solidarity with Israel and the Jewish people, but also expresses our concern. Uh, for Palestinian lives too that we know sadly have already been lost and will continue to be lost as a result of this conflict which was initiated by Hamas, who bears the moral responsibility for those that loss of life. And that was a really important statement by the parliament. It was regrettable in my view that there was an amendment move that attempted to hijack what was a condolence motion, that it was supported by the Greens and some TLMPs, and that both in the Senate and the House, the Greens voted against the ultimate motion because their amendment was not successful. That's very unfortunate, and it does make our task harder of sending a, that strong signal. The good thing is that it was still bipartisan, that the parties of government, the responsible parties of government, the Liberal and National parties and the Labor Party, and the majority of the crossbench in both chambers were able to support those motions.
0: You, you made a comment, I think, uh, in the last day or so about how obviously how concerned you and, and Australians are about the uh, the lives and safety of the uh, the people of uh, Israel, but also very much of Palestinian people and and, and the people in Gaza who, who are suffering uh, at the moment in the cross uh, in, in conflict one really uh, shocking incident in the past uh, day has been the uh, the explosion uh, on uh, or, or at uh, mm-hmm. a major hospital in in Gaza and there's still debate I note in the public domain as to who bears responsibility for um, for, for, for that catastrophic loss of life do you have any comment mm-hmm. on that? Well, it's very important to remember that Hamas is not just enemy of Israel and of
1: the Jewish people, it's enemy of the Palestinian people as well. You know, when we talk about Gaza being the largest open air prison in the world, it's Hamas who are the prison wardens of that prison, who don't allow the Palestinian people to leave, who refuse to engage in peace negotiations, who refuse to lay down their arms, and who in launching this attack on Israel knew that there would be response and knew that that would come at the cost of Palestinian lives, and have taken additional steps to make sure that that's the case. They store their weapons, uh, they store their fighters, sometimes their command headquarters in civilian areas, in apartment buildings, in hospitals, in schools, in mosques, because they know that Palestinian civilian casualties are a propaganda tool that can be wielded against Israel. So we'll determine in due course who was directly responsible for this hit on the hospital, whether it was a misfire rocket from Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or whether it was a, a missed uh, fire from an Israeli airstrike. But ultimately, the moral responsibility lies with Hamas, and we must be very clear about that.
0: Let's move to the broader strategic situation. And when we spoke a few years ago, I, I asked you about your own, uh, your own journey, if you like, to being a voice on national security and being uh, really a... a A leading um, player in your uh, side of politics on these issues, but also working very much in that cross-partisan world of uh, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. If you could maybe recap a few steps along the way of of your journey to becoming very focused on national security, and then Mm. I'd really like to open the conversation into the the global strategic situation that Australia finds itself in.
1: Yeah, Rory, as we've discussed before, I didn't set out to be a national security parliamentarian. It's not my professional academic background. And when I was first elected to the parliament, my focus was primarily on economics. And the first committees I chaired were the Senate Finance Committee and the Corporations and Financial Services Committee. And had we been in a more benign strategic environment and a more settled uh, time in history, perhaps that always would have been the case. But I shifted my focus on to national security because I believe it's the most consequential challenge facing our country. It is the only one which is existential in nature. It's the only one that will determine whether or not my children are going to inherit a liberal democracy from us and a sovereign country or not. And the decisions that we make there are just so uh, magnified in their significance that they they, they require absolute focus from parliamentarians. But there was also a historical accident, which is that uh, the Turnbull government, which I was part of, was contemplating an extradition treaty with China. Uh, I was offended as a classical liberal that we would ever extradite a citizen to face a justice system with a 99.9% conviction rate. We've just heard from Chung Lai yeah. what that justice system is like. Uh, and so I was offended on that principle, but I was also very concerned about the China's Australian diaspora and the way in which this would be another tool of coercion uh, to be used against them. Because of the Chinese Communist Party's view that if you are Chinese ethnically, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what your citizenship is, you owe obligations to Beijing. And so I said that I would cross the floor to defeat that if necessary. And from there, I became uh, in that China watching camp and became very concerned about all the other signals we were receiving out of China on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, on Taiwan, uh, on
0: Tibet, on so many issues. And so if you look at the the global situation facing Australia today, of course, there remains a um, very strong level of concern, I think, in the security community about the, the level of risk um, that Chinese power poses to Australia and the way that China uses its power, even as, I think, understandably, the government's pursuing a diplomatic stabilisation uh, strategy. But at the same time, we have uh, war in Ukraine, uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine and everything that means for... The, the rules-based system globally and and now this unfolding crisis in the Middle East, if you are taking a big-picture look at Australia's security priorities and how, as a power with finite capabilities, uh, we somehow advance and protect our interests and values in that world, uh, where, where, where do you stand? In a sense, you may, if I'm being um, a little bit um, rude about it, you have the privilege of not being in government at present. Um, and in theory, in opposition, that gives you a chance to take back and, t- and, and really take a strategic look mm-hmm. uh, because you're not responding to the crises of the day, and there are many of them. But if you do take that strategic look, um, what on earth does Australia do in these mm-hmm. circumstances? Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly welcome the fact that some
1: of the heat in the bilateral relationship between China and Australia has uh, evaporated, that the tensions are less than they were. But in my judgment, that is purely the, as a result of a tactical change on Beijing's behalf as it realised that the economic coercion campaign against Australia had failed, as it realised that that was damaging its international reputation and standing, and as it decided that its diplomacy writ large was unsuccessful in, rece- in achieving its national objectives. And so, it's made a tactical change away from that. But the underlying strategic challenges are exactly the same. They haven't changed at all, in my view. And the Chinese Communist Party's objectives of uh, first achieving regional dominance and then using that as a platform for global dominance and supplanting the United States as the principal uh, superpower is exactly the same and remains. And so, the challenges for Australia remain. You You talk about the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, and that is a very pressing challenge for the world. And Australia has an interest in that because of our values, but also because China is the principal economic sponsor of that war. If China cut off Russia, like the rest of the world has done, like most of the Western world has done, then that war could end tomorrow. But the continued financial support for the Russian economy f- from China facilitates that war and facilitates Russia's continued um, subjugation of the sovereignty of the people of Ukraine. And so, as far as I'm concerned, it is just one theatre, and we are facing a tide of rising authoritarianism. And whether it's in China or whether it's in Russia, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in North Korea, I think the same uh, very steadfast response is required from liberal democracies. We must stand with our like-minded partners. We must stand with our allies. And we must stand for those countries that may not have traditionally fallen into either camp, that might be on the fence, but who jealously guard their own sovereignty and their right to
0: self-determination, including in our own region. And one argument that's been made, I think, uh, with regard to the policies of of previous governments, the governments that you were part of, uh, perhaps – arguably in contrast to policies of the current Australian government, is the way in which we approach those players in the middle. You know, Southeast Asia, for example, uh, India perhaps is in a different position, but looking at engagement in our near neighbourhood, Southeast Asia and, and the Pacific, whereas you say, there are countries that are hedging, that are in the balance, um, do you think we're getting the balance right? And is there any soul-searching perhaps on your side of politics as to whether perhaps – The balance wasn't Mm. right at that time. I think those differences have been exaggerated for
1: political effect. And I think the policies that this government is putting in place are a continuation and in some areas an extension of the policies that the previous government put in place. But we they, initiated, they, do look,
0: they do look pretty effective.
1: Yeah, well, that we initiated the Pacific step up anticipating what would happen uh, over the next five years. I think that was a very foresighted investment in the Pacific and we refocused our international aid program to our own region rather than trying to solve the problems of the whole world, which Australia as a middle power um, cannot ever do. Uh, And what the current government's doing is extending that uh, even further, and I think that's a good thing. And I think had we been in government, we would have continued that too. Um, It's very clear to me that our interests are very most uh, acute in our own region, and so we should be focused there. And it is absolutely appropriate for the foreign minister and others to have spent the time and focus that they have in our immediate region because what the decisions that those countries make will be far
0: more consequential for us in the strategic environment we're in than some uh, much further away. What about public awareness and debate on these issues. We talked a little earlier about the work we're doing to, if you like, um, improve the level of awareness in in a contestable way, I believe, uh, with with parliamentarians uh, and and with those at that elite end of of the spectrum. But there is, I think, a growing level of public anxiety about a whole range of security issues. And of course, we we can't have this conversation without talking about uh, climate change and its impacts or the impacts of the COVID pandemic or those transnational issues uh, that are not, if you like, state uh, driven. But how do you see the right balance for the political class in ensuring that there is public awareness, but not a level of public alarm that's counterproductive?
1: Compared to where we were five years ago, I think we're having a much more honest conversation with the Australian public about the security challenges that we face, and I welcome that. I think that's really important. I think we have to treat the Australian public as they are, which is adults who are capable of processing complex information, and we would be be doing them a disservice if we withheld from them the grim realities of the world as it is. And so, for example – The communication around the Defence Strategic Review released by this government, and particularly Sir Angus Houston's observations that we're living in the most dangerous time in his lifetime, he's a very measured and mild-mannered person. For him to say something like that is a very significant statement, and I think the Australian people deserve to be taken into the trust of the government. Of course, there are classified things that can and never should be shared, but the flavour of the challenges that we face do have to be shared because there may come a time, I hope not, but there may come a time where we ask the Australian public to make sacrifices to meet those challenges. And they would quite rightly be very upset with us if we haven't taken them along the journey about that in advance. So they know in advance what those sacrifices may be. And they're not going to support, in a political sense, the investment that we need in our defence and national security unless they understand how serious the threats are. Equally, we don't want to over-dramatise them. We don't want to frighten people unnecessarily. And we don't want to do anything which makes, for example, our chinese Australian diaspora feel unsafe or un- not included in the Australian body politic. They have every right to participate in that, just like anyone else, and they should never be singled out and victimized and that's a really important balance we have to strike
0: we'll be right back hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
1: In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure
0: Australia. So we've talked in one part of this conversation about uh, ensuring social cohesion in the, in the face of the uh, the conflict in the Middle East. We've also now spoken in another part of the conversation about uh, the Chinese-Australian community and the way that they may feel um, alienated by the debate about strategic challenges in our region. Um, and of course, one of the uh, great strengths, a uh, fundamental strength of Australia as a multicultural democracy is uh, that... that, that tapestry of, um, of backgrounds of Australian citizens, I would also bring India into that conversation because I think we can't have a conversation about sovereignty and national security at the moment without looking at the um, the crisis between India and Canada, uh, where, as, as we know, there's been an allegation made by the Canadian Prime Minister uh, that's been vehemently denied uh, effectively by the, the Indian government uh, about uh, the killing of a Canadian national uh, who was, of course, uh, an individual associated very closely with the uh, the Khalistani separatist movement in India. That must be a confronting conversation for people thinking about uh, home affairs, home security in Australia, where we want, of course, very um, a very quality relationship with the rising power that is India, with the the democratic power that is India, but where also uh, questions about sovereignty and the rule of law come into play. What's your view on on that?
1: That was a very troubling development and I haven't been briefed on that and so I don't know whether those accusations are true. I certainly hope that they're not true, although I think it would be very unlikely that a Canadian prime minister would go to the steps of publicly revealing that in the parliament if it wasn't on a very firm basis. And that would be very unfortunate because I think uh, India and Australia and India and our other partners have a lot of work to do together and a lot of common interests and a lot of common values. And it's critically important that we uh, welcome India as it is being, as a growing international power and as an important responsible contributor to international system, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. We want them to take an active role. We want them to take an assertive role. We want them to take a prominent role. That will be harder if India is engaging in behaviour like that, which I really, as I say, I hope is not true. Um, it's a, From an Australian point of view, it's a relationship which I think we all know hasn't reached its full potential, which is um, particularly on the economic front uh, not yet uh, reaching its full potential. We had the early harvest uh, trade agreement. Uh, there was always envisaged there'd be a second stage of that. I hope this government is successful in finishing off what we started and we can deepen those relationships, but we have to encourage India uh, to behave consistent with its values and its principles
0: too. And I guess the the bigger question that I would um, raise is a a confronting challenge for Australia in the years ahead is going to be how to to maintain the confidence of very diverse communities within this country uh, where the politics, the geopolitics, the conflicts in the international system whether they're conflicts in the Indo-Pacific, whether they're conflicts in the Middle East, whether they're conflicts in Europe, uh, or whether indeed they're internal conflicts in um, in major countries, all have the potential to spill over into uh, the Australian community, the Australian system. Uh, any uh, general observations there on how we can maximise the um, the integrity of Australia in those? Circumstances.
1: Yeah, I think Mike Burgess's warning as Director General of ASIO of the
0: possibility for the spontaneous
1: communal violence stemming out of some of these tensions overseas is one that we should take very seriously. And we, of course, understand when people come to Australia and make Australia their home, they don't uh, completely separate or divorce themselves from their heritage and their right to feel very proud of their heritage, their right to want to have a continuing connection to their culture, their right to want to share that uh, here in Australia uh, with others. It would be very unfortunate, though, if the divisions which have defined societies which they have left are brought here to Australia and become an issue in Australia. Uh, We don't want our society to be divided on sectarian or religious or cultural lines as the way we do see happening overseas. So I think it is very important that in coming to Australia and committing to Australia, commit to uh, being an Australian and the values of our country and the acceptance of pluralism and diversity and toleration, even when uh, tensions are high and even when you're deeply and rightly concerned about friends and family
0: uh, at home who are facing very real challenges. So how... um Confident are you that we have the, if you like, the institutions, the security settings, but also the, the if you like, the broader um, policy settings of society, social engagement, communication, etc. Reassuring uh, the Australian community, uh, how confident are you that we have all the architecture in place? I am. Uh, I think
1: we've got work to do. I am concerned that we're not as uh, strong and united as we need to be for the strategic environment that we're in. And one of the issues, I think, is that we need to have a broad and unifying national identity which we can all unite behind and connect with. It can't be a national identity which is thin, which is just about um, the things which uh, we're distinct from each other on. That has to be broad and thick and about the things which we, we share. And I think it's really important that political leaders lead that conversation. So I think pride in our country... Pride in the history of our country, pride in our institutions, pride in our symbols is really important. I'm never one of those people who say we should whitewash history and say that our country is perfect or has a perfect history. We should be honest about our failings. But if we think there's nothing particularly distinctive or special about Australia and we don't share that with uh, people who come here and people who are born and raised here, then let's not be surprised when that loyalty and that commitment to Australia and its values are tested in, in times of
0: crisis. And of course, this is—I mean, this is sensitive terrain because, uh, as you know, recording a conversation today, we've just come out of the uh, the national experience of the, the voice referendum, which I think was a pretty fraying experience for a lot of people involved, and we're still, as a nation, I think, coming to terms with with, with, with what the result actually means. But if I read you rightly, you're you're saying that uh, we need a national identity that is unified, but that also comes to terms with our history, including those aspects of our history uh that you know, uh, that do involve, uh, if you like, wrongdoing in, in previous generations. So, I'm just curious to maybe draw you out, draw you out on that a little further before we go to uh, a few portfolio areas. That's a very good summary,
1: and I think there is unfinished business historically, and even unfinished business in our constitution. Um, I think if we ever contemplate constitutional change again, though, we have to try and build a broader consensus and obviously bipartisanship around it. One area where there is the potential to do that is to deal with the problem of the race power. It is the elephant in the room. It's the uncomfortable thing about our constitution. If we were starting a new constitution today, no one would vote for the inclusion of a race power. It was included in 1901 for explicitly racist reasons to target Asian migrants for discrimination. And in 1967, it was amended to include Indigenous Australians for strictly non-racist reasons, but uh, it is still have this legacy of a power where the parliament can make laws for people of any race, including Indigenous Australians, but including Australians of any other race. And it wasn't that long ago that people like Noel Pearson and Marcia Langton and Linda Burney and Megan Davis supported removing the race power, and I support that too because I think our constitution should be colourblind. And that was one of the features of this debate. I think Australians did vote for the unifying idea that we should all be treated equally in our constitution, but right now the truth is we are not. And so I think if we ever go down this road again, we have to tackle that issue.
0: Let's turn to some areas that are really at the heart of your, your shadow portfolio, so cyber security is, is one of those. And I think it's anticipated that there'll be a cyber security strategy uh, released before very long. Um, there were, of course, cyber security strategies under previous uh, governments, I think under Turnbull and, and Morrison, uh, as well as international cyber security strategies. But strategy is one thing, delivery is. Another. How do you think Australia is doing in protecting the, the interests, uh, indeed, the interests, the privacy, <laughs> the wealth of Australians uh, and Australia's institutions from cyber threats mm-hmm. at the moment? It has sometimes been
1: said in this debate that Australia is five years behind the rest of the world, but in my travels, I'm yet to find a jurisdiction which is five years ahead of Australia, and I haven't seen anyone else point out a jurisdiction really? that we should e- copy.
0: Even in smaller countries where it's sometimes easier to uh, there are get the pieces who, together? There are countries who are doing good things, um,
1: but there's no country in the world who I think is miles ahead of Australia. They think Singapore is doing some good things, Estonia is doing some good things, a lot of countries who are doing good things, but there is none who I think is doing anything uh, materially different or better from Australia. N- Nor is there any country that solved this problem and and dealt with this problem. So, I think we've actually done a lot of good things in the country. The critical infrastructure uh, reforms that we enacted are genuinely world-leading. They do not exist anywhere else in the world other than Singapore, who did it after us. The United States Congress would never agree to that, and it wouldn't be constitutional anyway. The investment in the ASD through the Red, Size, Red Bice Program was, was a major and significant investment, and it will equip us to better defend our country in times of crisis. Um, but there's obviously ongoing uh, evolution of the threat, and therefore there needs to be an ongoing evolution of the response. One area that I'm concerned that there hasn't been an adequate response to yet is the risk of high-risk high vendors from authoritarian countries. Now, whether that's cameras, drones, uh, social media applications, other products, um, they pose a unique and troubling challenge to us if they're internet connected and sophisticated devices and they're all throughout our economy and all throughout our society. And we have to grip up how we deal with those things uh, because these people are subject to the whims of authoritarian governments and that is danger for our country.
0: So, of course, the the high-risk vendor or the non-trusted vendor approach was, uh, if you like, the solution uh, on 5G some years ago where Australia did play a leading role internationally. Uh, Are are you advocating something similar uh, across these other Technologies, So please explain what the, if you like, what the policy solution looks like, because as you say, so much of this technology is already embedded around the country. It's going to be an enormous undertaking.
1: In the last year, I've led a series of audits that have demonstrated that the
0: Australian government has very high exposure
1: to some of these products, whether it is Hikvision and DAWA cameras, whether it's DGI drones, uh, whether it is Huawei uh, smart solar inverters, uh, either the Australian government or society are highly exposed to them. And of course, in social media applications and other software as well. Um, What I think we need from a government point of view is a central agency that maps this exposure, that gives mitigation advice, and in the future, before these products are purchased and embedded in our IT systems, uh, warnings are given to prevent them from being happening. Um, It shouldn't rely on an opposition senator to think of a risky product, ask questions and find out whether in the government there needs to be a central agency which deals with that. And if you're able to secure the government sector, then you can slowly widen that circle. You can widen that circle to defence industry, to critical infrastructure, and then to broader society. And I don't think that any of these high-risk products should be any in any sensitive settings, and the government needs to lead that conversation,
0: otherwise it won't happen. So you've mentioned the... Uh, institutional architecture for Australian national security, and that goes to the Department of Home Affairs, uh, among other things, and you are Shadow Minister for Home Affairs. Now, there's a lot of speculation about the future of that department, uh, which was uh, established, I think, in 2017 uh, under the Turnbull government, and which uh, has, if you like, had uh a, a few of its uh, constituent agencies, if you like, uh, broken off or returned to um, the Attorney General's Department under the, the current government. What's your view on the future of the Department of Home Affairs? Uh, is it fit for purpose? If you were Home Affairs Minister in a future uh, a future government, how would you look at the, um, the machinery of government? Well, I would say it's more than a few. It's the
1: AFP, it's the ACIC and Oztrack, And really, all that is left in the home affairs portfolio is ASIO and Border Force. It's not the vision of the portfolio when it was constructed. And it is one of the great achievements of the former government, in my view, to bring together the operational and policy arms of all the domestic national security agencies. And we now have a situation where it isn't actually clear who the lead domestic national security minister is. Is it the Minister for Home Affairs or is it the Attorney-General? And this has led to a series of problems. For example, the time taken to list a terrorist organisation and the ministerial consideration of that has blown out. We even had a terrorism listing recently where the Minister for Home Affairs was omitted from the process entirely and what has been admitted to is now is an administrative bungle. Um, I worry that small problems like that will escalate and cause real tangible national security risks for our country. And I think it doesn't make sense to have effectively demolished that portfolio as the government has. But you're right, there's a lot of speculation that even after the dismantling of the portfolio that we've seen, that there'll be yet even more of it to come. And I think that would be a really retrograde step. I think there is good sense in having those agencies together, and also good sense in having the oversight at arm's length with the Attorney General. I think there was a that was a really good structure, where the Attorney General who approves the warrants for ASIO is not the minister who's responsible for ASIO. So they're not both responsible for oversight and operational outcomes, and that has been blurred now that some of those
0: operational agencies have been put back into AGs. There's also an argument though that the um, that the institution has never quite uh, cohered in the way that it was. Intended, uh, and of course, there's been speculation uh, about whether whether the culture of that institution is is fit for purpose. So, um, just interested to draw you out further on whether uh, things would simply be perfect if um, if agencies were put back into uh, the constellation, or whether in fact there's some. Um, bigger picture uh, overhaul or or review of the
1: structure needed? Culture is very important and how these departments and portfolios are led is very important. And uh, without making any kind of comments specifically about individuals, I think it is important that you have Appropriate turnover at the top of departments like these, fresh eyes that come in and are able to look at it with a fresh perspective, and make sure that um, you know power isn't accumulated too much in the hands of any one individual or small groups of individuals. And if you get those cultural things right, then I think everything else follows. I think the settings are important and they should be
0: unified, but that leadership, uh, you know, organisationally is very important too. Before we wrap up, I want to uh, ask you about the the things that. Worry you. This has been a, a pretty sobering conversation because most of the things we've talked about have been about risks to Australia's interests and values, uh, and about the um, the ambitious but imperfect ways that that we really sought to mitigate those risks. Um, Black Swan events or black elephant events if you like the you know and, and for for the benefit of listeners of course a black swan is a metaphor for the event that catches you completely by surprise and a, a black elephant is the event that is actually staring at you and yet you sort of claim to be surprised when this catastrophe happens so many things in recent years have been in those categories whether it's covid-19 whether it's the conflicts we're seeing in the world what are the other black swans or black elephants on your horizon that Australia should be preparing for? I'm more worried about the elephants than the swans just because
1: there's no excuse for not acting on those. There will certainly be unanticipated events that we um, cannot possibly prepare for by definition, but we have no excuse not to prepare for the things that we know are risk of happening. And when it comes to those black elephants, I'm particularly worried about a nation-state-sponsored cyber attack on Australia, which would be utterly debilitating. As unpleasant, as uncomfortable and as frustrating as cyber attacks like the ones we've seen happen to Optus and Medibank and Latitude and others happen, they pale into comparison to the severity of what would happen if a state-sponsored cyber actor attacked a critical infrastructure provider, something like an electricity network, a telecommunications network, a water uh, or gas supplier, a logistics hub which uh, is able to distribute food and medicine around the country. If those things were attacked and they been able to take offline, our whole country would be destabilised and if that was a prelude to a regional crisis a geopolitical crisis or a military crisis or strategic crisis then Australia could be prevented from projecting our power into the region in aid of our interests our values and our friends and that would be utterly catastrophic and so I don't want to see us lose sight of that really systemic and existential risk that we face and I worry that the timelines that people have been talking about for potential conflict in the Indo-Pacific whether it's over the Taiwan straits or the South China Sea or the East China Sea or some other event mm-hmm might come a lot quicker than we think it is, and at a time when the United States Congress is divided without a speaker, where it's invested not just in a war in Ukraine, but now potentially a war in the Middle East, opportunities do open up for other bad actors to move into that space and take advantage of that. And if this comes a lot quicker than we thought it might, then the preparations that we've taken for it will be wholly inadequate, and I just really worry there's that sense of urgency is still lacking, particularly when it comes to our military preparedness. The DSR was great. It described the strategic environment in exactly the right way, but we haven't seen the funding or the urgency to match that, and I worry by the time that we realise that we had to, it will be too late.
0: And that's the, the Defence Strategic Review, of which a, uh, a sanitised version has been has been published. One uh, potential black elephant, if you like, that I'd put on the table and <clears throat> get your view on, of course, is political dysfunction in the United States, or indeed w- whether, w- whether it's intensified political dysfunction or uh, the return of a Trump administration or some other outcome that's dysfunctional and bad for Australia's interests uh, within the next year or two. It's not far away. What's your view on that? I'm a
1: big believer in the United States, uh, but I'm worried about where it is today. And I think its institutions have withstood the pressure that that they've been put under, but they have been pushed almost to breaking point. And we do not want to see any more events like disputed elections. We do not want to see any more of the... um, Uh, the unrest that followed from that. And we do want to see it become much worse. We need a strong America that's engaged in the world. And for that, we need a unified America. And I really hope that they're able to uh, resolve those really you know, deep chasms of internal difference that they have for the times that we are in, because uh, the petty domestic disputes that we all have in our democracies, and Australia is not immune for this, will pale into comparison with the very serious external threats that we may face in the years that we have ahead. And I think we will look back and harshly judge ourselves if we haven't been able to rise above those to meet this
0: challenge. So it sounds like the uh, with with the Prime Minister's looming travel to the United States and and China, I think, within the next few weeks, uh, Australia's going to have its hands full in a policy sense. Um, Any closing thoughts from you on, if you like, uh, where the opposition stands in in terms of bipartisanship? Mm -hmm. My, My starting point
1: in national security is to be bipartisan for two reasons. One, there is virtue in bipartisanship on national security, so we can't be separated by our adversaries. Two, government is in possession of information that oppositions are not and should deserve the benefit of the doubt. Having said that, we always, in a democracy, reserve the right to have our criticisms, but only when we think that they are warranted and they're necessary and we think the government's making mistakes, we will speak out. Actually, I want this government to be a great success when it comes to national security. Uh, As a partisan political operative, you often look for opportunities for failings to criticise them so you can get back into office, but I don't want them to fail in any way, shape or form when it comes to defence or national security or foreign policy because the consequences for our country will be so, so dire. And our role as an opposition is to help this government make the best decisions it can make. Sometimes that will require external pressure uh, to force their hand to move more quickly, to um, take tougher decisions. Sometimes it will be being strategically silent to allow them to make the decisions and have the room they need to make those difficult decisions. And we will always be guided by the national interest. Uh, Whatever my partisan affiliation, I don't want to retire from this place one day and look back and think, I made our country less safe for my children or grandchildren.
0: Senator Patterson, thank you very much. That's been a, I think, a useful conversation. It's been pretty illuminating with your perspective on the challenges the nation faces, but also what you would project, I think, as, as bipartisan responses to those challenges on the National Security Podcast this year. We've we've had the privilege of um, a conversation with uh, the minister, with uh, Claire O'Neill, the minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity, and we look forward to other opportunities to have government voices back on the podcast. But I think uh, it's been really uh, valuable to have your perspective here today. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rory.